Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipperer, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and Michelle's co-host for this program. And we hope you're staying well and are safe. This is the latest in more than 550 programs the club has produced online since the beginning of the pandemic. And we'll continue doing live stream events to the entire world, but we're also announcing our first in-person events in more than a year. So go to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS to see all of our upcoming programs, as well as audio and video of our past programs. And for those of you who are joining us for the first time, the Commonwealth Club is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to the civil discussion of important issues of the day. Any views expressed are those of the speakers. And if you're watching us on YouTube live, use the chat box to submit questions for our special guest today. And it's now my pleasure to introduce Michelle Miao. She's the producer and host of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Great to see you, John. And thank you, everyone, for joining us for today's program. I'm very excited for our author today. But she's not just an author. She's a journalist, a digital media expert, and the former editor-in-chief of Nylon Media. And also, I mentioned, author of her book, Just Released, Everybody Else is Perfect, how I Survived Hypocrisy, Beauty, Clicks, and Likes. Let's welcome Gabrielle Korn to the program. Gabrielle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So this is tradition here on the program, and it actually is in Chapter 2 of your book, but uh, we, always sh- we always ask our guests to share a coming out story. And it doesn't matter who, since the program is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between, but um, just whatever it means to you if you don't mind sharing a coming out story for us. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that like for most people coming out has many chapters, so to speak. Like there was the moment that I came out to myself, which was when I was in high school and realized that I had all of these crushes on girls. And then there was the moment when it became really clear that um, it was an important part of my identity, which was... um, my freshman year of college, I started dating my roommate and um, it happened really, really quickly. And it was like, I think I just was so isolated as a young queer person. Like there weren't other queer women around me. There weren't queer people on TV. I kind of had this feeling like I was the only one in the world. And then as soon as I met someone who felt the same way as I did, everything fell into place really quickly. And I think like I called my mom maybe like two days later and told her, um, and it, it all just happened super quickly after that. Like, I think I told my close circle of people and then I changed it on Facebook. (laughs) We're going to be talking a lot, obviously about your work in the media and, and messages you've tried to do and and initiatives and success and, and all that. But Lay the groundwork for us, if you will, on how did you get into this line of, of, of business and, and when did you decide, you know, this is where you wanted to go? That's a question I ask myself a lot. <laughs> um, I, I always knew I wanted to write and I didn't know what that meant for me in terms of a career. Like I, I had always been a creative writing person um, and ended up working for a like feminist publishing company called the feminist press my senior year of college. And that led to a job as an editorial assistant at a feminist journal right out of college. And from there, I just, I stayed in editorial and eventually that turned into jobs in the women's lifestyle space, which turned into becoming a beauty editor. And then um, I became kind of a generalist, but it was like, I think I knew what my skill set was, which was writing and editing, but also being culturally aware and being extremely online. So I, in a lot of ways, I had this feeling like I had fallen into it by like following the money, so to speak. Um, And I became the editor in chief of Nylon and kind of had a feeling like I didn't know how I had gotten there because it was like, it was a lot of like right place, right time, not a lot of like active choosing, just, just more like taking the opportunities as they came to me. Yeah. I, um, I got into AM radio at a time in which people said AM radio is dying, but it was just so exciting for me. And I think for my question to you is maybe the feeling is a little bit opposite. Um, and you, you share some of these feelings in your book of, 
people even thinking that you're part of the problem and, you know, taking jobs away from those who were in print, you know, their opinion. Um, And so what were your, your thoughts in terms of like the excitement of getting into digital media? Was it just something that was, you know, part of your culture, part of your generation? It was a natural thing that you felt, you know, this is growing. I want to be a part of it. It's exciting. Or did you kind of look back at it to say like, oh, this it's kind of scary because it might move us away from something we're used to, such as print media? You know, I wish I had been as thoughtful with it as the latter option that you mentioned. But the truth was, it didn't even occur to me to try to work in print because I didn't really read magazines. And I think that was you know, pretty common for the time and like very symptomatic of what was happening in the industry, which was this massive switch to online content. And like everything I read was on the internet. Like I would flip through magazines as I came across them, but I didn't subscribe to any. So when I thought about writing, I just thought about doing it online. And um, I realized once I started working at a company that had a magazine where the website was simply like kind of a promotional tool for the magazine, what it meant to be a digital editor in the publishing industry and what it meant that the website was more successful than the magazine. And then it really started to become clear to me like, oh, I have inadvertently participated in what is the future of this industry, which is exciting, but also really sad because it shouldn't to me it felt like there shouldn't be this split between print and digital because like good content is good content and i think what was so unfortunate about the 2010s was that people didn't take the time to train print editors how to do internet they just fired them and so many amazing people lost their jobs instead of being given the grace to learn a new skill companies just brought in new young people and i was one of them and after after a certain point, that felt really bad because I wasn't there to take anyone's job. I was there to just keep my own job and have my own success. And the fact that the success of the website came at the expense of the magazine was not something I ever intended to participate in and kind of like went against everything that I thought I knew about myself. So it was a really weird time, especially because I was at Refinery29 before then, which didn't have a magazine. You know, it was always a digital property. And it was like explosive growth. And it was like just this feeling of being on top of the world, like dominating the industry, crushing our traffic goals, money coming in. And in a lot of ways, that's kind of what I thought media was going to be like, because that was like the biggest company I had ever worked for. And then I went somewhere that was struggling a lot more than that. And it was like, oh, we are actually really held back by the magazine because it's so expensive. The readership is so small. Like, I don't know if it even makes sense to have it, but I wasn't going to be the one to say that. And you became Nylon's editor-in-chief, as I've read, the, the day the, the print version folded. Did that free you up then, I mean, in a way? I mean, okay, that's a done deal. So now you get to create. And how much freedom did you have to do what you wanted I guess this is a two two pronged question. How much freedom did you have to do? How much how much rope were they willing to give you to make mistakes and to experiment? Complete freedom. It was it was a tragedy that so many people lost their jobs and that the magazine was just disappeared overnight. Um, but for me, it was like the keys to the kingdom, and I reported to our CEO who didn't come from an editorial background, and he was kind of like. I don't care what you do as long as it works. So I I was thrilled because there were so many things that I had wanted to change. And I, before I got promoted to EIC, I was the digital director. And I did pretty much whatever I wanted online. But it was like, we, my team was kind of treated in a lot of ways like we were cheapening the brand by having this digital first strategy. And so without that, energy being directed towards us, we could really just totally lean into the things that we knew were working. And within the first three months, I made a completely new editorial strategy. And um, I think what I think the product we ended up with, it had a lot of the brand DNA, 
of Nile in the Magazine in that it was cool and like different and felt really fresh, but we did it in a very different way than the magazine did it. It's interesting because you, in some, in some ways we question yourself, like who am I to be the person that dictates what's cool or who am I, you know, to be this person that makes the decision of who to represent, you know, in, in a, on a platform like this. But at the same time, your success means that you kind of got it right. You kind of knew what was cool or what people wanted or um, how people wanted to be seen, especially queer people, especially women, people of color and, you know, uh, people that we generally didn't see before publications like Nylon. And so I wanted you to share, you know, a little bit of the perspective of what do you think it is if people, I'm sure that you get this question all the time for people who just don't get it, right? Who've just been doing something that's been dictated by big corporate dollars. But what do you think it is that you were doing, you know, that you created, that you did differently, that people were not understanding? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for that question. Um, that's really generous of you. I mean, I think this was before like inclusivity and diversity were part of the dominant conversation when you talk about media. And um, I still felt like we were really late to the game. Like I think Nylon had stayed a certain way for a really long time. And I really just wanted to explode this idea that like coolness equals skinny, white, rich, and straight. And for print magazines, not just Nylon, but across the industry, that's what it meant. And that's what that link was. And what I knew to be true was the opposite, was that that's not what defines being cool, that there are, you know, infinite identities left out of that kind of understanding. And I wanted our readers who maybe connected with the brand, but didn't think it was for them to see themselves in it. And, um, and that was the most important thing to me. So I, I remember like teaching the sales team about how to talk about race and gender and sexuality and like doing very like 101 primers with the teams about like intersectionality, um, you know, how to do diversity in a way that's not just surface level. So like the difference between anti-racism and diversity and that like in order to be anti-racist, you have to talk about racism, you have to engage with it. You can't just like ignore it because like you like the collection that that designer did. Um, and I think it really set us apart because it was it was only a couple of years before everyone started talking about it. But um, we had less to lose, honestly. Like I think print magazines and like legacy media, they have all these like very outdated ideas about what you need to do to sell a cover. And after working on the internet, I knew that the opposite of all of those values were true. And so we, I wasn't worried about selling magazines. I wasn't worried about our advertisers because they had all kind of gone away. Like I just needed to reinvent the brand in a way that was relevant to our readership, which was way more diverse than I think previous teams had acknowledged. And what do you think getting into identities you brought specifically to those, that mission that you, you created for yourself as a woman, as a lesbian, as a young person. Um, and do you think someone without those identities could have done the same thing you did? I mean, the fact that I was a lesbian in an editor in chief role at a major fashion publication, I think spoke for itself. Like, I think me in that role, being visible, talking about being gay, I think really mattered to people. Like it wasn't, it wasn't that I wanted to talk about it all the time, you know, cause like I'm a pretty private person. It was that I, I knew that other people would see it and that they would understand that that meant that Nylon was becoming a safer place for them. And um, I, I think, I think that a, a a straight person totally could have done it. But I think there is something to be said for having 
someone who you see yourself represented in in those roles talking about those issues and i think i think a lot of these doors have to be broken down um by anyone in that position and i think what i had was um privilege as a white person like i was able to get into those rooms um i think because of racial bias and i think you know i really tried to use that power to bring other people to the table and um you know i i did the best i could with very limited resources and i there were times that i think i wasn't as aware of my privilege as i could have been because i think like because i was the only lesbian in my peers that felt like the loudest thing but then once i kind of zoomed out it was like oh well i'm still like white and femme and like if you don't know i'm a lesbian you might think that i'm exactly like all of these other people so it's complicated you say you were the only lesbian among kind of that cohort only out lesbian i mean or is this, sure you know, yeah like, okay <laughs> yeah who knows um but at that time there was not another fashion eic talking about being a lesbian one of the things I enjoyed most uh, about you know the your book is just understanding like even where I'm coming from as an everyday user, right? Someone who produces content and puts it out there and thinks the world should hear it, and then you know no one hears it or or it doesn't get out there that I think that everyone should. And at the same time, I don't even know like, I don't know who I am. Like, what should I look like? What what should I be like? What should my voice sound like? Um, but you bring up, you know, these points in which coupled with social media, it's just this this powerful tool that social media has in either making you, so you can make yourself someone that maybe you're not in reality or it def- definitely uh, impacts the way that you, you know, perceive yourself and how you're supposed to put yourself out there in the world. And you went through it yourself individually here you are on one hand you know talking about beauty fashion and doing all this work to provide you know a very uh, a different space for many different people to see themselves and at the same time you were struggling uh, with your own internal conflicts i guess you could say and i think it's worth it to, to openly talk about it why don't you share with us you know why sharing so many of your personal struggles in the book was important to you? Because I think that there are so many pressures that we are all under, and especially as women. Um, And I think one of those pressures has become like feeling perfectly about yourself and um, being this, like, I mean, less so now. I do feel like this idea of the like perfect girl boss has kind of like you know come under fire, and I think, and I think that's been like one benefit of the social conversation of the last year. But um, for me, it was like I had this life that looked a certain way because I had packaged it a certain way, and the reality was that like it kind of sucked. Like I, I was so burnt out and. Um, really struggling with my own mental health. And like, as, as I became more and more successful throughout my twenties, the version of myself that I presented to the world and the reality of it became further and further apart. And like, I was, I was getting new jobs. I was getting promoted. I was getting photographed by street style photographers. And then I would go home to my like, you know, crappy little studio in Bed-Stuy. And like, I just... (laughs) You know, it's like, it just felt like I had curated this existence that um, didn't feel like me anymore. And at the same time, I was part of my work, as we mentioned, was fighting to make these spaces more inclusive. And part of that work was body positivity and making sure that women of all sizes were represented and treated equally. And while I was doing that work, my um, anorexia got really out of control. And it was like, 
the things that I stood for publicly and the things that I believed about myself privately were at odds with each other. And it was important for me to write about that because I think it's so, so common. Like, I think that we have become so good at celebrating all kinds of bodies except our own. And until we can bridge that gap between the things we allow for other bodies and the things we allow for ourselves, like the work is not done and it's not authentic. And I thought that because I came to fashion from, you know, like a queer theory background and because I was this scrappy little lesbian who had these like radical ideas about what inclusion meant that I was immune to the forces of the industry that I was in and I wasn't. And that was important for me to talk about because if it could happen to me, someone who was very aware of all of the ways that fashion and beauty are designed to keep women down, then it can happen to anybody. And it does happen to anybody. And like most people, it happens to. You said you're a pretty private person. Was it difficult to write the book and and now even to have people talking about it and really knowing of these stories about your life? It was difficult to figure out how much to include. Like the writing of it was really easy. It was like the hard part was going through and taking out details that I knew I would be asked about. (laughs) And it was like, I couldn't tell if it was scarier to think about like people who know me reading it or people who don't know me reading it. But either way, it was more information than I had ever shared with anybody. And um, I... I, I think I found a balance that ended up feeling okay. Like there are some things that happened to me, some relationships I had that I just totally kept out of the book because I was like, I don't want to have to deal with like the repercussions of going public with these things. Um, and I think because the response has been so nice, it that has also validated those decisions. Like I haven't really felt like, I haven't been made to feel like my trauma is on display. Like people have been very thoughtful. Um, And once I stopped reading the Goodreads reviews, that also helped a lot. (laughs) Um, You talk about pay equity. You're very honest about uh, your pay. I tend to think that writers are underpaid. It's my opinion. (laughs) You know, I still, I still think that these days, especially uh, folks of color and queer folks. Right. And, but you were not shy to be honest about how much you made that first year at Refinery or even how much you got paid from some of the smaller in individual or independent organizations. And then all the way up to being editor in chief and still feeling like you might've been underpaid. Um, you did say, you know, a little bit that you might've regretted a little, uh, how you went about it and how you kept fighting for your pay. But there are so many women these days who are really speaking up about their value and being underpaid. What's been the response from folks who have caught on to you being so open about pay equity? I've gotten, that's actually the thing that I've gotten the most emails about is people being really grateful for that kind of honesty around that. I think there's there's so much stigma around talking about exact numbers. And for me, it was like, I can't tell the story of being underpaid without saying exactly what I'm making because otherwise it could mean anything. And I think, I don't know, like I hope, I hope that me being open about it inspires other people to be open about it because like one of the reasons why we're continued to be paid so little is that no one talks to each other about what they're making. And so everyone just kind of feels in the dark about it. And I think that has been something to me that is really inspiring about the new generation of people in editorial is that like they've unionized, they've gone public with what their minimums are. They're like, they're not giving their employers the option of treating them how my generation was treated. And it's, you know, it, It's really interesting to watch because I'm realizing that like I thought that I really stood up for myself. And I think in hindsight, I really didn't. I really let a lot of things go because of that like lucky to be here attitude that we all kind of had. And it's like you're supposed to be so grateful for the job that you accept certain things. And I think I think I fought back in a lot of ways and in a lot of other ways I didn't. So yeah, I mean, all that all that to say, it was really scary 
to come out with those numbers, especially because there was a certain point when I hit six figures. And um, I think there's this like mythology in media around what it means to make six figures. And that like, once you've done that, that you have made it and you never have to worry about it again. And the reality is you're still living in New York city. Like you make that amount of money and then you're expected and then you're in a new role and you're expected to like have nicer clothes. And like, you know, it's just like, it's still not enough money to live the life that you're supposed to be living for those jobs. So um, there was a little bit of like eye rolling that I anticipated um, about that specific part. But it was like, I when I became editor in chief, I was making 120. And um, all of these stories were coming out about EICs at Condé Nast making, you know, like 800K and having lifetime pe- pensions. And it was like, okay, so like I'm making great money for my age, but for the role and the work that I'm expected to do, I'm not making anything. So it was like, that was a feeling too, was like this guilt over being overpaid for the experience that I was bringing to the table, but then knowing I was being underpaid for the work I was expected to deliver. Uh, wow. Four decades ago, my mother was an editor of a small magazine in Wisconsin and uh, had advertising from a lot of nice clothing places and furniture places and such. And uh, she was paid peanuts. I remember her comment at one point, she was just like, I can't afford to shop at these places that are advertising in my own magazine. Um, What advice could you give to young people? I'll say of either gender, but in particular women who are feeling that they're underpaid or wondering if they're underpaid or, you know, how, what approach should they take in their job with their bosses and such? I think the best way to go about it is to get data points. Like you have no argument with your boss unless you can present evidence to prove that you're being underpaid. Um, So I would, I would collect those things. I would talk to recruiters. I would talk to headhunters, talk to your peers, get as much information as you can um, and present it that way. Like I think what I have found is that bosses don't respond well to like your feelings about the money you're being paid. They respond well to like the threat of losing you because you're worth more. So um, that's, that's the way I would go about it. I like a point you made because I feel like, you know, especially since last summer and the murder of George Floyd, there have been other corporations who come out to want to do something more and are more vocal about, um, you know, social justice, racial, you know, justice. Right. But there's something that you said that, that really sparked with me, which is, you know, we can come out and we can have these uh, trendy narratives around racial justice or these social justice issues, but what changes that if we don't change the actual culture, even within the workplace, or we don't create models or products that mirror, you know, what we're trying to say. And so to me, what you've done at Nylon is kind of walking the walk and talking the talk. And if only everybody else was thinking that same way, do you feel like we've made a whole ton of progress, especially in the media world with this regard or yeah, we still have a whole lot of work to do. We have so much more work to do. Like, I think it was so amazing to watch the conversations about racism in media unfold so publicly last summer. Um, It was so long overdue. It was so devastating that it took a man being murdered for people to listen to those conversations because they had been happening, you know, for decades and um, they finally got the attention they deserved. But for me, that was when I decided to leave media because it just felt like there's no ethical way to be a white person taking up space here. And I just... Yeah, I just like I just didn't have it in me anymore um, because I didn't feel hopeful about the ability to make change because I think all of these places were treating it as a hiring emergency when really it's a retention emergency. Like they were they were bringing in women of color and those people weren't staying for very long across the board. And so it's not a matter of just backfilling those positions. It's a matter of taking a hard look from top to bottom at the work culture 
at your company and figuring out like, why is this not sustainable for marginalized people? And what has to change? And I just, I didn't see that conversation really happening. Do you think it's it's easier to try to make some of those changes in, say, a small media company or one that's, you know, like Condé Nast, part of a huge, you know, billion dollar company? Any thoughts on that? I don't know. It's a hard question because the larger company has the money, but the smaller company has... Um, I don't know, <laughs> more, more accountability because there are fewer people. I'm not sure. I think, I don't, I think regardless of size, I haven't been super impressed with what I've seen. What about uh, beauty trends and identity and, you know, and seeing that change, especially in social media, because it seems like, right, like you can create smaller organizations to mirror your values, just like, kind of, yeah, what you've done with your career, right? Um, are there any positive news to share with us <laughs> as far as like, yeah, like people being able to take back their power and create their own communities and share online and they do it, you know, there people, there are viral stories or people are just kind of collecting fans along the way with their own styles, especially queer people, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. And I think that is one of the gifts that social media has given us, which is the ability to elevate people who were otherwise ignored. And on social, it's like this equal opportunity space where everyone is given the same square to exist in. And I think that that has really allowed people who were really left out of specifically the beauty industry to elevate their own selves instead of waiting for the industry to catch up. And I think what's really interesting about what's happening now is that a lot of queer and trans people are being signed to major modeling agencies based on their success on Instagram. And um, that's really cool. And I'm really curious to see where it's going to go because um I think that means that like these mainstream beauty brands, you know, like the CVS brands that are kind of the last to catch on to the feeling in the air, like they're going to have to start casting those people and they're going to have to start creating products for a wider range of skin tones and like, you know, acknowledging that the like racist Western beauty ideal that has been so ingrained into that industry that like, that's not only irrelevant at this point, that it's like actively harmful to people. Like you can't ignore those two things if you want to be successful moving forward. And so I think I do really credit people on social media with that shift. I know you've left that world, but if you were to somehow be put in charge of Vogue, <laughs> the brand and magazine Don't and all that kind of it. stuff, well, <laughs> What would you say about it or make it a, ge a generic, large, influential brand um, where you're you're both straddling traditional and, and new media? What do you think you could do that? I don't mean do you think you have the capabilities, but I mean, do you think the, the model can be moved to where you want it to be? Or is the answer to kind of leave it as you as you have and others have as well? I mean, I think I think you can. Because I think with a brand that's such a household name, that's something that people want. Like people want to see themselves reflected in Vogue. They don't want to have to buy some like $25 magazine that someone's never heard of from like a dusty corner in Barnes and Noble. Like they want the mainstream big name thing to speak to them. But I think there are so few magazines who can. Like I think, I think like the fear is you need such a wide subscriber base to sustain a magazine that if you get too niche with who you represent, that the majority of people who are buying the magazine will stop buying it. And I think, um, I don't know. It's like, I mean, it, this is a question that comes up in all kinds of content. It's like, do you try to make something that appeals to everybody or do you make niche things that appeal to specific people and i want to see both like i want to see queer people and people of color in the mainstream and i also want like something specific that just speaks to me and my community and i think i think vogue is one of the few places um that should be for everybody but i think like 
part of the problem is that it's a fashion magazine and fashion by definition is exclusive, whether that is because of price, because of, you know, your size. It's like, I think the that's less of a media problem and more of like a fashion industry problem. I just going to ask a question about, you know, the the investment in digital media and like who actually ha- wields the power in digital media. And I think I got the answer by, you know, towards the end of the book. Um, but if that doesn't change, then I don't know, like wh- who are we when the ownership of you know things like this, that's supposed to be for everybody is just one, I guess, gender, one race. And I can't see it be, the diversity that we want to see it. And so how do you change that? It just feels like we're not answering that question as um, we always have, this always comes up, right? Like how do we get more equity into these places? Yeah. I mean, so it's so funny that you bring that up because it's one sentence on like the second to last page of the book. And it's something that I danced around for 270 pages and then dropped it in there. And that was that almost every women's media company is owned and controlled by a straight white man. And um, I know that that sentence was really loud because of how many people (laughs) have talked to me about it. Um, And I just think they need to like step aside already. Like, I don't know what else to say, but like go do your own magazine. Stop trying to profit off of like what you assume women are interested in because it's not working. It's not like digital media is this like thriving, stable business. Like it's falling apart and has been for as long as I've been participating in it. So like, can we let other people try and see what they can do? And I think like the problem is as soon as someone else starts a smaller brand, if it is successful, it then just gets acquired by these other larger brands owned by white men. And it's so frustrating to me because um, it's just not, it's not what I want to be consuming, like knowing who's making money off of it. Like once you peek behind the curtain and you understand who your clicks are going to, it's like, what is the point of any of it? And I, I do think that that is something that a lot of people are feeling because like, I don't really know anyone who online is spending a lot of time in the women's media space anymore. Like, I think there was a moment and I kind of feel like everyone is exhausted by it and like checking news on like, you know, their Apple news feed and then going on Twitter. Like, I don't know if people are going to homepages anymore. And I think the fact that that shift is happening to me should be like a fire alarm that something major needs to change. Um, and I think, I don't know, like, I think it's a business problem. Like, I think we need some like business minded women to come in and like come up with a new structure for it. I am not someone who understands money or where it comes from. So it's not going to be me, but like (laughs) someone needs to think of something new and it needs to be um, something that is divorced from the purse strings of the same three people. You're now uh, at Netflix. What can you tell us about what you're doing there, what your role will be, what projects you can work on? Anything you can say? Um, So I started at Netflix in September. I am running a platform called Most, which is our platform for and by the LGBTQ plus community. That's really exciting. Yeah, it's like the most fun I've ever had at work. Like, I'm just, I'm so happy. I really love it. It's um, it's a really special thing to have a company like Netflix be investing in this audience and to give me and my team pretty much creative freedom into, um, you know, how we how we talk to that audience, how we build loyalty with them. It's really fun. You mentioned you know, being happy. I just, you know, after you're so burnt out, successful at a very young age, you know, obviously success is not your entire life. And I think you have um, a great perspective on balancing that, finding self-care, finding yourself, and then getting to a place of both success and happiness. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I so I left Nylon um in 2019 when we got acquired. And by the time I left, I was so burned out. I actually like couldn't get off the couch. Like I became physically ill. Um, 
and just said to myself, I am never going to do this again. Like this is the last time I'm going to turn a job into my identity because I, in leaving it like really became clear that I had been working myself to the bone for something that belonged to someone else. And I didn't benefit from it at all. You know, like I benefited from it in some ways, like it was a job that I loved. It um, contributed to me getting this book deal. It allowed me to do work I was proud of, but like from a financial perspective, you know, there was nothing. And, um, I, I ended up going back to refinery after I left nylon and I was there for less than a year that time because it just, it didn't feel right at all. It just felt like I can't believe I'm doing this again. It was so hard to care enough to work as hard as I needed to work to be successful. It was like, I just like didn't have it in me. And then of course the pandemic happened. And I think that was something a lot of us felt, which was that the difference between work and life needs to be a difference. And that was something I had been feeling for six months prior and um, the Netflix job kind of came out of nowhere and it, it was like an angel descended into my inbox. Like <laughs> it just, it couldn't have been a better time for me to do something completely different that I really care about that um, can be fun and interesting without being like the first thing I say about myself when I meet someone new. We have a, uh some questions from the audience and let me kind of merge a couple of them together here because there's a question talking about kind of changes needed in the media industry and on, on a lot of levels here but um the question uh, how do we encourage schools that are teaching media arts what role can they play in equipping people with different skills maybe with different ap approaches and certainly attitudes as they uh, leave school and get into uh, actual professional work yeah, that's a great question. I think that the people who are the best the best set up for success in media are the people who aren't just one thing. So it's like the people who are just writers or just editors, those were the first people to lose their jobs. So like I would recommend training people how to create video content, how to do social media strategy, how to do all of the different things required to be successful in digital so that when there is an inevitable pivot, you can survive that pivot and you're not rendered irrelevant by like Facebook announcing that, you know, the video strategy is going to lead, which is something that happened. And a lot of people lost their jobs over it. You have more audience questions, John, or? Oh, sure. Well, here's a fun one. I think uh, it asks, is reading fiction a waste of time, a mere entertainment? No, no, fiction is the best. And I, I think uh, this kind of goes into something else as well. Um, you had mentioned to another interviewer, you're interested in doing in something in science fiction. Um, what can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, okay. So I, science fiction is my favorite. I um, grew up reading it and read it in adulthood. Like I just, and I, so I started writing it about two years ago and it was in this moment of wanting to be really honest with myself about like why I was a writer and the reason I became a writer was because I did want to write fiction and I abandoned it because I wanted to make money more. <laughs> so I had a job and I had time and I thought like, what's going to come the most naturally to me and what ended up coming out was um, an extremely queer dystopian thriller. And um, I, I have rewritten it maybe seven times since I started working on it. I am hopefully finishing up what I would love to be a final draft. Um, but it's, it's been a really interesting exercise. It was an amazing way to um, pass the time over the past year. And um, it also made me really aware that like MFAs are a thing people get for a reason. <laughs> well, this, this might make Michelle's eyes kind of glaze over, but um, specifically I want to talk about the genre of science fiction as, I mean, what attracted you to it? Because, Certainly growing up reading it, again, as, as a young person and as an adult, one of the attractions that sometimes wasn't even uh, blatant, but it was definitely there, was an openness to gender and, and racial issues and, and all kinds of, of kind of questioning and, and suggesting alternatives to things. Was that ever part of the attraction for you? Yeah, I'm sure. I don't think it was conscious, but... Um... I I think when I was in like middle school or high school, got really into Octavia Butler and I didn't know that I was gay, um, but I read 
basically everything that she has written. And she, of course, um, is famously queer. And a lot of her novels deal with, like, you know, metaphorical otherness in the form of aliens and weird alien sex. And it was like, I just... I just connected to it so much, but couldn't put my finger on why. And I also think that like when you have work in general that like explores the question of like life on other planets, like what technology can do, um, like the boundaries of space and time, all of that to me is really a metaphor for queerness, for being isolated, for wanting connection. Like, you know, I think space exploration really functions as like a metaphor for like exploring yourself and exploring connection. And like, is, is there anyone else out there is also like, is there anyone around me who can connect with me? Um, so it's like, you know, I'm still haunted by those questions. Like, I recently read um, The Three-Body Problem, and I can't stop talking about it to everybody, and I think (laughs) I need to rein it in. But, like, (laughs) you know, there was a week where I was just, like, Googling UFO updates, like, every morning. And um, (laughs) I just, like, in writing a novel, I really allowed myself to be that person and to be that, like, nerdy, enthusiastic, like, you know, my my truest self was writing that book. It wasn't writing like the 10 best mascaras for short eyelashes. It was in, you know, writing about like lesbians at the end of the world in space. (laughs) Well, we look forward to seeing that novel. Michelle? I thought, you know, science fiction has crossed over to science nonfiction these days with the UFO sightings though, right? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So you know, by 30 years old, you've already claimed the title of editor-in-chief. And so for many people, you've done a lot. And uh, this is a new chapter in your life, new role, new city, moved to a whole new city. Can we say that? Yeah, I just moved uh, to L.A. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to this side of the country. But, I mean, what are other aspirations, you know, for the next decade of your life or even two decades? Would president of the United States be one of those goals? (laughs) Hell no. Um, You know, I really, I really want to be a novelist. Like I really want this novel to go somewhere and lead to more novels. Um, I, I have found myself feeling very jealous of people on the creative side of things. Um, And I, yeah, I just, I want to be able to create. Um, and also like personally, we got engaged right before the pandemic. So, um, I'm planning a wedding. We're looking for a house. Like I am looking forward to like, you know, like starting my life in that way. Uh, Actually, you, you mentioned earlier kind of the, the, the pandemic hitting and such. Could you tell us a bit, A, what the pandemic was like for you and B, what's it been like doing a book tour virtually? Obviously, in a normal world, we, you know, you'd be on stage with us at the Commonwealth Club and, you know, visiting all kinds of other places. Has this been better, more troubling, more distant, more connected? I mean, what's it like? It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I, I was in Europe in February 2020 for Fashion Week. I was in Italy when Italy became the hotspot of the world. And then I went to Paris where they were like, what pandemic? What are you talking about? And then by the end of that week, it was in France. And when I came back home, it was the same thing here. It was like nobody taking any precautions or understanding the threat. And um, that was a really surreal experience. Um and I had just started at Refinery, basically, and um, my pay was cut. I went down to part-time, um, you know, and I know a lot of other people had it a lot worse. And um, it was hard and scary and stressful, but I also feel mostly extremely grateful um, that I was so lucky that, like, I had a job that I had a book coming out. My book was supposed to come out in June of 2020 and it got pushed to January, 2021, which I think was for the best. Um, and doing a virtual book tour, it, 
it's hard to say if it was better or worse because it's the only thing I've experienced. I think it did allow people access that they wouldn't have had. It allowed people from all over the world to come virtually to this strand who did my launch event. Um, and I think like that was hugely beneficial. Um, and I, the response to the book was so nice. It like, it really made me feel so good. But then it, the hardest part I think about the virtual book tour was like the conversation would finish and I would close my laptop and like, and then I would like text with a hundred people, you know, it was like, there is, I think something so important about the experience of a live event, especially because writing is such a solitary activity. And like the reward for having written a book is like getting to talk to people in person about it. Um, and like, you know, I had, I had my fiance with me. So like, thank God, um, it, it was just, it was, it was like a, a disappointing version of what I had in my head, but it was also like, I don't think it could have gone any better than it did. And a lot of people during the pandemic, of course, have not only dealt with the extra time they might've had if they were at home, as opposed to going into the office, but also dealt with the stress by binging on, you know, TV, Netflix, uh, reading books that they maybe had never had time to get to before. Any of that for you? Oh yeah. We watched every TV show ever. We like, we rewatched True Blood from start to finish. We rewrote, we, well, Wallace hadn't seen it, but we watched Friday Night Lights from beginning to end. <laughs> but I also, once I started working at Netflix, I was working West Coast hours from the East Coast. So I was working from like 12 to 8.30 basically. And I'm not a morning person, but I, at that point, really tried to get up early and get writing done as like the thing I did every single day. And then at night we would just watch TV for like four hours till we passed out. Speaking of responses of the book, um, I'm curious to know if any of your former bosses or people that you've worked with uh, read the book and responded to it, especially around, you know, just some of the industry stuff that you talked about, the pay, how the battle for it and so on. I haven't heard from any of my former bosses about it. Which is fair. <laughs> um, but I, you know, there was an outpouring of responses from former coworkers, like, you know, little details like um, that there was like a staircase that we all used to go in to cry. I got a lot of texts that I included that that people really thought was hilarious. Um, and I, I actually was reached out to by editors at other places who I know from industry events, but who I don't have a relationship with, um, who felt very seen and very validated because it's like all of this stuff that you just kind of accept as normal until someone points out, points out that it's not was in there. Follow-up question to that is if you at any point or ever feel like you know, the digital media world is missing a key person, um, you know, someone like you, like if you, if you walked away from that, not entirely, but, uh, you know, would you return back? Because I think, I think the digital media continues to need you. Thank you. I mean, I think that there are other people <laughs> who are doing a really good job. Um, and I think that, there's been kind of like a changing of the guard and there's a new generation of EICs and I have a lot of faith in them. And I think that they're going to do beautifully. And I think what I would need in order to go back to media is, um, you know, an enormous amount of money, but also like the ability to make it a non-toxic environment for my team. And with the structure of digital media being what it is, I don't think that's possible yet. And um, another question that I had is we talked about the pandemic and yes, lots of us had binged on media, um, but at the same time, now that the country is opening up a bit, there's many of us who are still feeling, you know, the anxiety, the panic from uh, the pandemic. And a lot of us might be feeling very vulnerable to even what we look like, our body shape and our sizes. I'm hearing a lot of even my friends say, I can't go out just yet because you know, I can't fit my clothes anymore. Um, I thought you'd be the perfect person to talk about, you know, or even give a couple thoughts uh, to, to overcome this and that, you know, 
feel like we're all in this together and we can go through it together and everything's, I don't know. I don't want to say everything's going to be okay, but you help me out here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so hard. It's like, I, cause I, I understand it and I have felt that. And I think we all have. And it's like, there's part of me that just wants to be like, can we all just agree to gain 20 pounds and then like all start at the same like new base level. But it's like, that's not the point. The point is you survived a pandemic and a lot of people didn't. And a lot of people you love probably didn't. And by focusing on the size of your body, you're distracting from, I think, the fear of the things you can't control. And like body size feels like something we can control. And so when you fixate on it, you're avoiding fixating on the, you know, vast uncertainty that is being alive. So for me, whenever feelings about my body come up, I let myself have them, first of all. Like, I don't beat myself up for it. But then I try to figure out what is triggering me into focusing on what I look like. What am I avoiding thinking about? Why do I need this control? What do I feel like I don't have control over? And I think, you know, we just experienced a year and a half of complete powerlessness. So it makes perfect sense that people would want to wait to reemerge until they feel like they are in more control. But like, life's too short. We have seen how short life is. A, B, no one's going to notice. Like, at the end of the day, everyone is so concerned about themselves. Like, buy new clothes that fit you and that you feel good in and like, go have fun. With all that um, has happened in changing media over the time, you know, print pretty much dying, uh, new media, you know, coming out and, and social media, um, all that stuff's going on, all the stuff that's going on and the, the cultural upheaval, um, a lot of reckoning going on, a lot of resistance to that, all this kind of stuff. So I want to ask you the uh, kind of the, the big unfair question, which is, are you optimistic that things are getting better on uh, that we as a society are are really addressing things and, and improving? Or is this just another moment in time when there's attention paid to something and then it'll, you know, go back to being what it was? You think we're changing? I think it's both. I think progress is always incremental. Like, I think we had a Trump presidency after we had our first ever black president, you know, like there's always going to be movements that rise up in backlash to social progress. So I think it is, it's going to ebb and flow, but I do think it's ebbing and flowing in the right direction. And I, again, like have so much faith in the generation that's coming up. I think that they see things in a way that no one else ever has before. And I think that they have the grit to, make lasting change. Um, but I think, I think in a lot of ways, like we've seen many moments in time like this where people talk about, you know, issues, especially about racism. And then everyone kind of feels like they've checked a box and they've moved on. And I think, um, I think what's good is that we're still talking about racism one year after it became a major topic across the board. And so I think, I think for all of us, we have to keep talking about it. Like we can't let people feel like because they talked about it that then we can move on. Um, but more so than talking, I think it's about listening. And like if people are saying that this is still a problem, like then it's still a problem. And, um, you know, for me as a white person, like it's not my discussion to lead. It's um, if I'm in a position of power, it's my obligation to elevate it and call attention to it and give money to it. Um, and so that is what I personally intend to do. Well, I thank you so much for sharing your stories and your experiences in your new book, Everyone Else is Perfect. I love that kind of, you know, put the arrow in and else, because I had been thinking this whole time, like trying to perfect myself and I really appreciate it. And it's stories and experiences like this that I think, can lead to change because somebody is going to pick it up, is going to read it, is going to say, I'm going to pick up where she left off. And so thank you so much for your book. Last question for you. Um, what was the first thing you had 
in LA. The first thing I had like to eat? To eat, yeah. Oh my God, it's so embarrassing. A salad. <laughs> and yeah, I only I only ask that because every time I think of LA, I think of all the good, uh, you know, the, the taco trucks that they have that yeah. there. Yeah, so we did have really good tacos about three days in, but um, before we got here, we had been staying in a hotel for three days and we're just eating like the most disgusting takeout and restaurant food. And I was like, I just need like raw greens and just like to start over. Um, but all that is to say, we've had lots of like amazing produce. <laughs> the vegetables yeah. are amazing here. I'm really excited for more tacos. And um, just want to say to the first part of your question, Thank you so much for having me. This has been so wonderful talking to you both. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. And, and the last thing I was going to say was make sure you get some Chinese takeout. Oh, from uh, where? Yeah. No, in, in LA. And only because you, you mentioned Chinese takeout a few times in the book. But anyway, everyone out there, please pick up the copy. It's a great read. And sharing all these experiences, like I said before, we're all going to learn from each other. So thank you, Gabrielle. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. John, you have the last words. Well, thank you again to our special guest, Gabrielle Korn, on this Michelle Miao show at the Commonwealth Club of California. Thanks to all of you for watching or listening to this program. Feel free to share the video or podcast with your family, friends, coworkers, anyone else. You can find more programs at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Stay safe and have a good weekend. Goodbye.